According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Leviticus. Uh, For this hour, it's Leviticus chapters 12, 13, and most of 14, or half of 14. This is day 53 in the Through the Bible schedule, titled by Ron Rhodes, Ritual Laws. Chapter 12, 13, and 14. We're going to start with childbirth. When a woman gives birth and bears a male child. It's a very sexist chapter. We better pray and get in fellowship. Oh, and they're waving a black flag at me, which is a sign. I know what that means. And the extra people were waving, so I would look at the person waving with the black sign. Thank you for that. Can you see me now? Is it streaming? All right. Let's open the word of prayer and ask our Father's blessing upon our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, it is, once again, your grace to us and our blessing to receive the opportunity as we have it set before us now. So, Father, I ask for your blessing to reward the hunger and the appetite and the the volition for those that have chosen to, uh, to feast upon your truth, Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, the laws of motherhood. At least that's the pericope heading that the New American Standard Bible went with. Um, but we're looking here at verses 1 through 8, childbirth. And we've seen up till now different elements of things that would leave a person clean versus unclean. We haven't yet gotten to some of the leprosy chapters and and those unpleasant things. But we have seen food, for example, that just by eating uh, what I had for lunch today would render me ceremonially unclean, all right, because it had all that pork on it. Well, something else that's not sinful, that's not wrong, it's good, it's normal, it's natural, it's what God wants for us is to have children, And uh, yet, the process of childbirth leaves that mother in an unclean circumstance. Plus the husband, when he touches her, touches anything she's sat upon or laid upon. And uh, let's just take a look at it here. Verses 1 through 8. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days. As in the days of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. So this is the normal seven-day unclean period similar to a monthly uh, cycle. On the eighth day of the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. But if she bears a female child, all right, look out, then... She shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 66 days. So we're doubling on each. When the days of her purification are completed for a son or for a daughter, he, uh, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or turtle dove for a sin offering. Again, what did the kid do? What, what kind of sin did they commit? Why, why are they bringing a sin offering? Okay? It's not. It's it's the name of the offering. It does not mean that the mom sinned or the baby sinned or anybody sinned. It's the kind of offering that is brought on such an occasion, because she is a sinner and she gave birth to a sinner. Whatever else we might say 
about how cute the baby happens to be. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether male or female. That's the child, not the birthing person. I feel like I have to say that these days because our culture is so lost. All right. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering, the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she will be clean. All right, so that is chapter 12. Now, of course, everybody wants to know why. (laughs) For the birth of a son, the mother had a seven-day period of menstrual uncleanness, followed by a 33-day period of ceremonial uncleanness. And uh, we have not only this material here, but then chapter 15 that we can relate it to. We'll get into that here shortly today. We'll get into other kinds of bodily discharges. For the birth of a daughter, the mother had a 14-day period of menstrual uncleanness, followed by a 66-day period of ceremonial uncleanness. Remember, it has nothing to do with hygiene, it has nothing to do with sin. It is a recognition of the ceremonial or the, uh, the ritual clean or unclean status. Okay? And I, I keep going back and forth between ceremonial and ritual. They mean the same thing regardless of which you choose to use. I'm trying to be more consistent so I think I've gone through all the notes and changed them all from ritual to ceremonial. If, if I've missed some I'll try to get those dealt with. All right. Now what, what do they do in their uncleanness when they can't go to tabernacle, when they can't take part in Passover, they can't take part in the, the feasts or the, the the celebrations of the Jewish people. Well, they reflect. Childbirth is the time for a woman to reflect. The new mother can reflect upon the entrance of sin into the world and the woman's role in the fall of man. It is a fact, of course, that the, the, the pain that's associated with childbirth is the consequence of her role in partaking of the fruit before Adam did. The doubled time of separation for the birth of a daughter then is a reflection of the woman's double subjection. Have you ever thought of it in these terms? The consequences of Eve's sin as well as the consequences of Adam's sin. And really it falls under both consequences because she has her own consequences and then as she's subject to her husband as unto the Lord, then she's subject to his consequences as well. The new mother can reflect upon the entrance of a unique human being into the cosmos. This makes it a time of joy, makes it a time of celebration. As our Savior said that in travail, when a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. And it's more than just, hey, here's a baby. There is the faithfulness of God that is faithful from generation to generation to generation. And every time a woman does give birth, it's a testimony to the promise that when Adam and Eve became sinners, God had promised them that the seed of the woman was on the way, that there would be a promised deliverer who would come. And this promise of a Savior, this promise of a, later became called as a Messiah, but the promise of the coming Savior was going to come through the miracle of childbirth. It was going to come through the process of the woman bearing the child. And so we have the, uh, the, the theological blessings that can be focused upon at such a time. The joy of the new life celebrates both her literal child as well as the seed of the woman promise to mankind. And I think that this gets spoken to in a, in a couple of different passages. I think the, um, 
when Elizabeth cried out uh, to Mary, she had come to visit during their pregnancy, and, and uh, Mary is visiting Elizabeth while they're still pregnant, and the baby leaps in, in Elizabeth's womb for joy. And, uh, and so which causes Elizabeth to testify about that. So when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. This isn't a Roman Catholic Mary worship thing. This is a legitimate, spirit-led celebration of God's faithfulness to send the Savior as He promised to do. So blessed are you among women. Of every woman since Eve onward that's been birthing sons, Mary is the one that gets to birth the Christ. She gets to birth the promised one, the coming Savior of the world. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? And in, I think this is a great testimony of, of humility and encouragement. This is like John the Baptist who said, hey, I, I'm not the groom, but I'm the friend of the groom, you know, and I'm going to rejoice over these things that I can be uh, associated with. And same thing with Elizabeth. If she can't bear the Christ child, she can bear the forerunner and she can have worship and fellowship with the mother of the Christ child. And that's what's happening here. So for behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. She, the, the child had the joy capacity. All right. And then when Mary sings her own song in verse 48, she recognizes that the Lord is the one that has regard for the humble state of his bondslave. Behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Again, that's not a Roman Catholic Mary worship thing, but it is a recognition that God has been faithful to his seed of the woman promise, and that now finally the, 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 uh, the birth of the Christ gets, uh, we, you know, of course, we all get saved because he was faithful to do the work he was sent to do. There's also the recognition in 1 Timothy 2.15. Now this is a text that requires a lot of work, but it does. Uh, this is the passage that says that women can't be pastors, and here's why. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. That's the order of precedence. That's the order of authority. This is why when she sinned first, that the, the estate of sin was not vested in Eve. It's as in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. If, uh, if humanity became sinners in Eve, then we would have a lost estate in Eve, and we would need a second Eve to come along and remedy the first Eve. That's not the design. The design is Jesus came as the second Adam to redeem us from the curse of the first Adam. So the order of precedence is the order of dominion, the order of authority. I think it's why it's so hated today that uh, this world will rail against the patriarchy, failing to realize that it's the patriarchy that, uh, that makes the provision for our eternal life, that we can have a new patriarchy in Christ instead of the old patriarchy in, uh, in Adam. Also, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved, and this again talks about what happens when, uh, when you stay within your gender role, when you don't try to usurp the man's authority, then you have the salvation or the preservation against such sin temptations. When women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So it centers on the gender roles and the functions there of manhood and womanhood. 
Finally, back to Leviticus, at the conclusion of the enforced separation, special offerings were required for the restoration of the woman to ceremonial cleanness. Again, it's not a sin issue. It's not like she did anything wrong. She had a baby. Okay? The issue is, though, having a baby is an earthly thing. It's a worldly matter. It's a, bio- it's a bios life event. And in order for her to be restored to a ceremonial clean status, whereby she can function with the remainder of the Jewish people, she can operate with the covenant nation, the holy nation, in their sacred worship, requires that clean status before the Lord. And so these sacrifices then make that, uh, make that happen. By the way, Mary had to do the same thing as well. We read about that after the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. The days of her purification were complete. So she had done the 7 plus the 33 and then uh, had come to the temple to present him before the Lord. And you'll notice the option they had was the turtle doves, which is the low income, uh, struggling uh, economic bracket there that uh, Joseph and Mary found themselves in. All right. That's chapter 12. Now we got more disgusting things to talk about. <laughs> We've got leprosy, and we have other bodily discharges, okay? And uh, they get highlighted here as well. So the Lord then revealed to Moses and Aaron extensive teachings on leprosy. In fact, it takes up the bulk of two chapters, and uh, plus additional realms of Scripture. Um, so the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, when a man has on the skin of his body a swelling or a scab or a bright spot and it becomes an infection of leprosy on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron and the, pri- uh, Aaron the priest or to one of his sons, the priests. So couldn't be a Levite, had to be a full priest in order to make the evaluation. The priest shall look at the mark on the skin of the body and if the hair in the infection has turned white, and the infection appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is an infection of leprosy. When the priest has looked at him, he shall pronounce him unclean. But if the bright spot is white on the skin of his body, and it does not appear to be deeper than the skin, and the hair on it has not turned white, then the priest shall isolate him who has the infection for seven days. And the priest shall look at him on the seventh day, and if in his eyes the infection has not changed, and the infection has not spread on his skin, then the priest shall isolate him for seven more days. And the priest shall look at him again on the seventh day, and if the infection has faded, and the mark has not spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It was only a scab. Okay, It is not leprosy. False alarm. You're good to go. He shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the scab spreads further on the skin, after he has shown himself to the priest for his cleansing, he shall appear again to the priest, and the priest shall look, and if the scab has spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is leprosy. When the infection of leprosy is on a man, then he shall be brought to the priest. The priest shall then look, and if there is a white swelling on the skin, and it has turned the hair white, and there is quick raw flesh in the swelling, It is a chronic leprosy on the skin of his body, and the priest shall pronounce him unclean. He shall not isolate him, for he is unclean. If the leprosy breaks out farther on the skin, and the leprosy covers all the skin of him who has the infection, from his head even to his feet, as far as the priest can see, then the priest shall look, and behold, if the leprosy has covered all his body, he shall pronounce him clean, 
who has the infection, it has all turned white and he is clean. But whoever, does some of this stuff seem counterintuitive? Some of this stuff seem, I wouldn't have said that. Okay, But this is what God is stipulating and this is the procedure they were following. And stop thinking of this as a medical issue. These aren't doctors, they're priests. Okay, If the raw flesh turns again and is changed to white, then he shall come to the priest and the priest shall look at him and behold, if the infection is turned to white, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. Him who has the infection, he is clean. Alright, we'll stop with that. We'll look at some of these notes and then then uh, we'll get past leprosy and start talking about boils and other uh, swellings and other uh, bodily uh, discharges. All right. Should be okay with this. After lunch might be a somewhat sensitive time, but in any event. Lord revealed to Moses and Aaron extensive teachings on quote-unquote leprosy. And we put it in quotes for a reason. Okay, because it may or may not be anything related to the current disease that we call leprosy today. It was commonly referred to as Hansen's disease or other conditions today, and through recent centuries that have been identified as leprosy. Okay, which is still existent in the world, still in different places. There's there's leper colonies in India and other places, um, even though there have been cures for some time. Nevertheless, the colonies persist. And this is not unlike what we were talking about last hour when um, modern translators are trying to figure out the meaning of a Hebrew word from 3,000 years ago. And with all those birds that just became owls of different kinds, right? Because they didn't exactly know. Uh, But uh, different scholars have done studies on the plants and the animals and the, the flowers, different things in the Middle East in the century that they were researching and then took their best guess at what plants and birds and animals might have been there 3,000 years ago, okay? As if animals don't move around. So um, same thing too with disease descriptions. We have symptoms, we have uh, things that, you know, that look like they could be an eczema or they could be another skin disease of some sort, could be a a rosacea, could be, you know, anything that we have modern labels for things that it's not always precise trying to match them up with the Old Testament vocabulary. But we'll We'll see it for what it is, all right? The, the primary word that's through, used throughout all these chapters here is the tsaraknath. Tsaraknath. And you've got to close your throat in the middle of that to make the uh, sound. The, uh. So tsaraknath. All right, that's the that term. It's regularly rendered as leprosy and always has been in, in every English uh, version that we've come across. And, and realize those early English versions from Wycliffe to Tyndale to the Geneva Bible to the King James Bible, when you're in that, that era of, of medieval history and into the early Reformation era, uh, the, the plague was a big deal. And there, was, uh, there, were, there were plagues and, and leprosy was a big deal. And what we know today is the modern disease of leprosy. So it's not surprising that it would be translated this way. Plus, this is how it got translated in the Greek the Greek lepra was the term that was used to translate the Hebrew uh, tsaraath. Anyway, the verb tsarat, uh is, is the verb that means to be afflicted with his disease. <laughs> so it's a verb that means to have the noun. And uh, in people, whatever label we want to give to it, it is a malignant skin disease. That is, it affects the skin, it is visually identified, and it either spreads or it doesn't. Okay? 
Uh, but also, we're going to see in this chapter and the next, we're going to see that, that the same sarath vocabulary that's applied to human beings and their skin disease also has applications to clothing, also has applications to buildings, all right, houses, residences, structures of some sort. And so, in, obviously, in, in, uh, it's not leprosy in a building, but it would be like a mildew or a mold. It is a living growth. It is a, it is a spreading growth that is visually identified. And as you visually look at it and are creeped out by it, you have the visual confirmation of the spiritual principles that God is teaching us through such times, living in fallen bodies in a fallen world. We have very visible reminders that this world is a fallen place. So that's what we're looking at there. Same vocabulary, whether it's used of people or it's used of clothing or buildings. Tzatlarath was uh, rendered, or Tzatlarath, was rendered by the ancients. Now in the, in the Greek it's lepra, L-E-P-R-A, lepra, uh, and the adjective lepros. And obviously you can see that's where the English word lepros, leprosy comes from. It comes from the Greek. The Vulgate, uh, in the Latin, it's leprae, L-E-P-R-A-E. So biblical leprosy is now understood to be something different from modern leprosy or what is otherwise referred to as Hansen's disease. How is it different? How is it similar? Well, we'll see. The Hebrew tsaraf and the Greek lepra likely do refer not only to actual leprosy but more beyond that, Okay. Clearly it can apply to actual leprosy, but other conditions as well would qualify based on the visual description these priests were given. So also to such skin diseases as psoriasis, lupus, ringworm, and is it favus, favus? Something like that. All right. Other skin disorders. The terms continue to be rendered as leper or leprous, though, in many modern translations for lack of any better term. I think they, they actually just struggle with it, except there are a few now lately, recent translations like the, uh, the Christian Standard Bible, uh, they start making use of the term serious disease. Okay, serious disease. But I don't like it. I mean, if a man has a serious disease, go to the priest and let him look at it. That, that, to me, that's too generic. Um, infectious skin diseases. Okay, that's better. That gives me the idea that it's skin-related and, and can be seen. That's the Lexham English Bible, by the way. You all have that in your Logos libraries. Uh, the, the Net Bible uses diseased infection, is how they render it. But the New American Standard, New King James, most Bibles today will just use leprosy and, and be done with it. Okay, Which kind of gives a bad impression. I mean, when I was young and I was growing up, I was thinking, first of all, reading the Gospels, I got the impression that demoniacs were roaming everywhere. I mean, you know, just Jesus seemed to encounter them all kinds of places, and I was wondering if they were in my neighborhood, and if it just seemed to be all over the place. And then in the Old Testament, it just, I got the impression, too, that leprosy was everywhere. And, you know, is this something I might catch? And, and who do I got to stay away from? How does this work? Is it contagious? And some folks say, oh, it's terribly contagious, and make them live over here in isolation. And then others say, no, I, honestly, there's not a, a very big risk of contagion at all. But in any event. So, um, there we go. God's infliction of divine discipline can take the form of bodily diseases upon pagan nations such as Egypt. And he will use leprosy as a judgment. 
He will strike leprosy. And he did so with Moses. He did so with Aaron. She was leprous because she was condemning Moses at that time. And so, um, actually, I don't think we've gotten that far yet. No, that's coming up still. We still have uh, Aaron and Miriam and their rebellion coming up. Um, Personal sin cannot be automatically assumed, however, as the root cause of all physical infirmities. That's why we took the time to go through the book of Job, right? Not everything that appears to be divine discipline is divine discipline. Sometimes it's just a fallen body in a fallen world. The guy got sick. Okay? Sometimes it's, it's just the, the consequence of sin in this fallen world or undeserved suffering. It may be a lesson of undeserved suffering where God's teaching the, the, the views of sacrificial love and he didn't do anything to earn or deserve it. So we want to be clear on that. The, the people that were debating about the man born blind there in John chapter 9, who sinned? Was it him or was it his, his parents? You know? And if Jesus was half the smart aleck I am, I, he would have had a better answer for that. He would have said something about, yeah, he sinned in the womb, you know, and come up with a long list of things that he violated while he was still in the womb. In any event, no, Jesus says neither. He didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. This is for the glory of God, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. All right. So just as a holy nation was to have a holy diet, we've dealt with that in Leviticus 11, and holy mothers in chapter 12, the, uh, a holy nation is also to have holiness in their physical health. And when we deal with this in Leviticus 13 and 14, uh, the person with the, um, the disfigurement, the person with the what appears to be, might be a disease, might be, might not be, we don't know, but it is a blemish. Okay, And it's a blemish. And if the animals can't have a spot or blemish, what makes you think the people can have spots and blemishes? Okay, They can't. The fact is they can't. And if they do, for the period of time that they do, they are uh, not permitted in the, in the sacred assembly. They cannot function in the tabernacle. They cannot participate in the feasts or the other issues because they are visibly in the realm of the unclean. Skin diseases and other marks. Let's see, I guess this is in verses 16 and following. All right, let's go ahead and read some of these other verses and then we'll get those notes. So um, beyond the, the Tzaragath, we got now the boil. Remember when Job was struck with boils from head to, to toe. So when the body has a boil on its skin and it is healed, and in the place of the boil there is a white swelling or a reddish-white bright spot, then it shall be shown to the priest. And the priest shall look, and behold, if it appears to be lower than the skin and the hair on it is turned white, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is an infection of leprosy. It has broken out in the boil. But if the priest looks at it, and behold, there, is no, there are no white hairs in it, and it is not lower than the skin, and it is faded, then the priest shall isolate him for seven days. If it spreads further on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean, it is infection. But if the bright spot remains on its place and does not spread, it is only the scar of the boil, the priest shall pronounce him clean. Or if the body sustains in its skin a burn by fire, and the raw flesh of the burn becomes a bright spot, reddish white or white, Then the priest shall look at it, and if the hair in the bright spot has turned white and it appears to be deeper than the skin, it is leprosy. It is broken out in the burn. Therefore the priest shall pronounce him unclean, it is an infection of leprosy. But if the priest looks at it, indeed there is no white hair in the bright spot, it is no deeper than the skin, but is dim, then the priest shall isolate him for seven days. 
The priest shall look at him on the seventh day. If it spreads further in the skin, the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is an infection of leprosy. And there we go. All right. Then a man or a woman and a beard and more of these uh, descriptions that are given. Then the scales, if the person has scaly skin. Always involves inspection by a priest, always involves the passing of time. The observation, is it better, is it worse? (laughs) It's okay if you're bald. If a man loses the hair on his head, he's bald. He's clean. Okay. If his head becomes bald at the front and sides, he is bald on the forehead, he is clean. But if the bald head or the bald forehead there occurs reddish-white infection, it is leprosy breaking out on his bald head or on his bald forehead. All right, I'm going to skip through these bald verses. I'm not liking them. As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn, the hair on his head shall be uncovered. He shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. In fact, to cry it out before as you walk through the streets so that people can uh, you know, not get near you. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And you ended up with little colonies of people living in these isolated locations. In fact, there's a famous one in, uh, on one of the islands in Hawaii, actually, that uh, I've read some things about. All right. Now we, got, we move on to the garments in verses 47 and following. And then the houses and things that might have um, a visual blemish, greenish or reddish in the garment and different uh, evidence of mold and uh, defilement. In the garment, in the leather. Again, don't call for the building inspector, call for the priest. Okay? This is a spiritual function of the Levitical priesthood. And it's, it's not healing the man, it's not fixing the man, it's not curing the disease. It is the spiritual determination whether this believer is eligible or ineligible to stand in the presence of the covenant nation in the presence of the holy God. That's all it comes down to. And there's some other gruesome verses coming up too. I want to make sure I don't miss those. (laughs) All right. We're going to talk about the hunchback and the dwarf and the crushed testicles and just other verses that that come up here that will keep a man from being an acceptable priest as unto the Lord. All right. So point eight in the outline. Skin diseases and other marks of the physical curse upon the earth. That's what we're dealing with here, whether it's a, a blemish in the skin uh, or, you know, even if it's just cosmetic more than, um, than disease-centered, it still is a reminder that this is a fallen world, that we live in fallen bodies and, and, and we li- our fallen bodies are living in a fallen world. So skin diseases and other marks of the physical curse upon the earth, such as in clothing or buildings, render the Jewish people ceremonially unclean before the Lord. There will be additional things that we'll talk about when we get to Leviticus 21. And this is where, um, yeah, a blind man, a lame man, a disfigured face, a deformed limb. There's a long list of things there that would, that would disqualify. Even if otherwise he has the perfect qualifications, right? He's got the exact lineage that he needs. He's a son of Aaron. He should be the next high priest. Well, he's a dwarf. 
Sorry, you know. Or uh, he's got other uh, things that are on the list that visibly mark him as being, um, as, as having the, the problem that he has. Is that discriminatory? This was before the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed, and it seems like, you know, we need a crusade for dwarfs or, or for hunchbacks or for um, crushed testicles or other things that, are, that, were, that would veto the priestly service. Well, God determines how he's approached. And no un- no, uh, every animal's got to be unblemished. Every priest has to be unblemished. Anyway, I don't know. We need to read the whole thing. We'll get to it when we get to chapter 21. But uh, if your offspring has a defect, he's, uh, he's banned from his priestly duties. So it's a blind man, a lame man, he who has a disfigured face or any deformed limb, a man with a broken foot or a broken hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or one who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scabs or crushed testicles. No man among the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect is to come near to offer the Lord's offerings by fire. Since he has a defect, he shall not come near to offer the food of his God. Remember the Apostle Paul had an eye condition. He had a disfigurement that was gruesome to look at. He would have been disqualified under the law. But he was the apostle of grace in the church age. So what a blessing we have there. All right, point nine then. The Levitical priesthood was tasked with ministering to the leper, not as a physician, okay, but as spiritual arbiters of clean versus unclean. And it's a pass-fail, and it's, it's the word of the priest, and what he says goes, right? And it's really not even subject to uh, review or subject to uh, appeal because uh, you've got to be, you know, the same priest that judges you is the same priest that saw you the week before, you know, every seven day interval. And and if you think that, you know, you want to appeal to a higher court or go to a higher priest or whatever, that's not even possible because those higher priests didn't look at you seven days ago. You've got to go back to the one that was examining you. He's the one that can tell if it's spreading or if it's worse, if it's better or what it might be. So the uh, the proclamation comes from the priest. No cure was provided. It's not like with uh, Elisha and, the, and Naaman, or it's not like uh, you know he says, "Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and you will be clean from your leprosy." None of that. There's no cure. That's being. It, it's all whether in time if you improve or in time if you don't improve, whether you are eligible for the uh, the national worship of Israel. So no cure was provided, only quarantine. Footnote, if you're interested, leprosy in the modern world has been curable since the mid-20th century. And still to this day, they continue to refine different combinations of, uh, of different medications and, and uh, so forth. All right. It's kind of an interesting study to actually read it and see real science and real medicine working on different uh, infections and different treatments and, uh, and things there. All right, chapter 14. We're only going to do about half of this chapter here for today, for this hour. Cleansing the leper. Not healing the disease, but declaring the man ritually clean and eligible for priestly functioning, priestly uh, worship, Levitical worship. 
So the course of action for the leper is to be separated from the fellowship of the congregation and to be restored only upon the cleansing offerings. Offerings. Okay? The Lord spoke to Moses saying, this shall be the law of the leper. The Torah of the Taraknath. This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. Now he shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go out to the outside of the camp. Thus the priest shall look. And if the infection of the leprosy has been healed in the leper, then the priest shall give orders to take two live clean birds and cedar wood and a scarlet string and hyssop for the one who is to be cleansed. Notice the sacrifice comes after the healing. It's not the sacrifice that makes him healed. It's not the sacrifice that cures the disease. But it's the priest who determines that his condition is now restored to a, a normal place and that he can participate with the, the, the corporate worship of the, of the holy nation. Two live clean birds and a cedar wood and a scarlet string and hyssop for the one who has to be cleansed. And the priest shall give orders to slay the one bird in an earthenware vessel over running water. As for the live bird, he shall take it together with the cedar wood and the scarlet string and the hyssop and shall dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slain over the running water. <laughs> kind of gruesome. Does it sound like voodoo? What is it? What's going on here? He shall then sprinkle seven times the one who is to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the live birds go free over the open field. Now Jesus didn't do any of this. Anytime Jesus encountered a leper, it was just his power at work. He would do the miracle as a part of the testimony of him as being the Christ in that he could seal the, the, heal the sick and, and uh, the lame and, and all the rest. The one to be cleansed shall then wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and bathe in water and be clean. Afterward he may enter the camp, but he shall stay outside his tent for seven days. It will be on the seventh day that he shall shave off all his hair. He shall shave his head and his beard and his eyebrows, even all his hair. He shall then wash his clothes and bathe his uh, body in water and be clean. On the eighth day he shall take two male lambs without defect and a yearling ewe lamb without defect and three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering and one log of oil. Footnote. Approximately one pint. And the priest who pronounces him clean shall present the man to be cleansed in the aforesaid before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And, and really that's the big deal. He's been expelled from the community. Now he gets to stand in the doorway of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall take the one male lamb and bring it for a guilt offering with the log of oil and present them as a wave offering before the Lord. Next he shall slaughter the male lamb in the place where they slaughter the sin offering and the burnt offering at the place of the sanctuary. It's on the north side of the altar. For the guilt offering, like the sin offering, belongs to the priest, it is most holy. The priest shall then take some of the blood of the guilt offering, and the priest shall put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Is that reminding you? We, we read that not, it was this morning, right? When we were reading about the ordination of the, of the priest. The priest shall also take some of the log of oil and pour it onto his left palm, the priest shall then dip his right hand finger into the oil that is in his left palm. With his finger, sprinkle some of the oil seven times before the Lord. The remaining oil, which is in the palm, the priest shall put some on the right earlobe of the one to be cleansed, and on the right thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot, on the blood of the guilt offering. While the rest of the oil that is in the priest's palm, he shall put on the head of the one to be cleansed. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf before the Lord. 
Okay, again, kafir, the atonement doctrines that we have throughout the Old Testament. The priest shall next offer the sin offering and make atonement for the one to be cleansed from his uncleanness. Then afterward he shall slaughter the burnt offering. So guilt, sin, burnt. The priest shall then offer up the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him and he will be clean. Again, not forgiven, not made righteous, not put back into fellowship, not spiritual. It's not a spiritual versus carnal issue. But he will have his clean status. He will show his clean card. Okay? If they had such a thing. Like a vaccination card. You know, the priest says I'm clean. And then he can go and he can worship. And he can function in the tabernacle. He can bring offerings. He can take part in the religious life of the covenant nation. If he can't afford all that, if he's poor and his means are insufficient, then he has a cheaper option here. And uh, including birds and we can skip down through some of this. All right. Understand in your daily reading, I don't want you skimming through all of this. I want you to read every verse. This is just in our in the interest of time as we're trying to watch the clock and, and keep up with this. All right. Well, like I say, there's a lot of lepers in the Bible. Here's a here's a listing of them for you. The uh, Moses, and that was just a, a momentary thing. It was given as a sign. This is like, um, you know, and I wonder how often did he have to repeat this? How frequently did he have to repeat this? Okay, but in Exodus 4, 6, he was given the uh, the leprosy as a sign where he could stick his hand into his bosom and bring it out. Leprosy everywhere. Put it back in his bosom, pull it out, and he's clean, you know. Seems to me like that's a pretty cool party trick if he's, uh, you know, he's out with his drinking buddies or whatever he's doing. Moses has the opportunity for, for that. No, seriously though, it was the sign of his being sent from God because, I mean, that's not normal. There's a divine power at work here and it's clear that uh, this is somebody to, to pay attention to. Miriam, uh, we're going to see this story coming up in Numbers chapter 12. When the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous as white as snow. And as Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. And so uh, the consequence is there. Anyway, so she was shut up for seven days in that, uh, in that condition. Naaman, the Syrian, in 2 Kings chapter 5. This is one of the more famous ones. I actually reference this chapter every now and then because um, he's a Gentile. He's a Gentile who's come to Israel because he has a little Jewish slave girl. If you think about it, you know, what, what crummy conditions to be a, a slave girl in a foreign land, and yet she's positive to doctrine, she knows the truth, and she has a, a ministry to her master. And uh, so he's going to go to Israel on her recommendation to, uh, to get healed. And then it's also kind of interesting in that the, the instructions he's given um, offend him as far as... Um, based on patriotism or racism or some uh, chauvinism view of, of, you know, what's wrong with the rivers of Syria? Why, why is this Jordan River so special? And who do you Jews think you are anyway, kind of a thing. And uh, it's a great chapter. It's, it's got um, examples in there, which I think is interesting because Elisha isn't going to take payment, but his servant gets greedy and he wants to take, uh, take some reward for the work that Elijah had done or Elisha had done. Jesus actually references this when he's um, 
giving some unpopular messages to the people of his day. He said there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. There was no shortage of Jewish lepers in the land of Israel. But who was it that was healed? It was the Gentile. It was the Syrian that that, uh, had gone down there. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And that got everybody angry, wanting to uh, put Jesus to death. And that was the final example when he talks about there were many widows in Elijah's day, and uh, Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, the land of Sidon. Again, Gentile territory. Elijah goes out to Sidon to a woman who was a widow. You know, when you think about it, God had more mercy towards the uh, Gentiles in many different applications than the Jews, certainly, because judgment begins at the house of the Lord. The accountability is higher for the Jewish people, those that had the law. The Gentiles, who were largely ignorant unless they had some connection to, to the Jews somehow, um, there, were, there was more mercy, I think. There was more leniency. And even Jesus would, would uh, the Syrophoenician woman, for example, and other examples, he would, uh, he would make note of the faith that was to be found among the Gentiles. And, uh, and comment upon that. Gehazi, he was the servant I mentioned earlier in Second Kings chapter 5. He gets struck with leprosy, and I think it's lifelong. The leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your seed, your descendants, forever. So he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow, and he never does get a healing. So that's remarkable. There's four unnamed lepers in uh, chapter 7. I love these guys. These guys are great. Because these guys witness something and then they realize, we better report this. Okay? And uh, four lepers at the gate. Because there's the army is on, the Assyrian army is coming and, and everybody's expecting to die. And they can't even go into the city for protection because they're lepers and, and they're not even allowed in the city. And so they're kind of in the no man's land there. And they say, why do we sit here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, then the famine is in the city and we will die there. If we sit here, we will die also. Now therefore come, let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we will live. If they kill us, all all we can do is die. We're going to die anyway. We will but die. So they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans. And when they came to the outskirts of the camp, behold, no one was there. Okay, so it's, it's a marvelous deliverance. And Israel didn't have the faith to see it, but these lepers do. And these lepers check it out and it's... Uh, it's interesting. The Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and the sound of horses. They thought they were under attack. It was just an illusion that was generated by God and what they heard and what they saw. So they said, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. These, these dominant world powers of the ancient world and they thought they were outnumbered by Egyptians and Hittites. So they, uh, they just fled. Left their tents, left their horses, left their donkeys, left their camp left their food. So the leopards show, lepers show up and man, they can just party like kings because the whole, the whole place is theirs. <laughs> but then they said to one another, we are not doing right. I think this is marvelous. These guys are believers. They're saved. They're oriented to truth. They're oriented to right and wrong. God's absolute standard of righteousness. This day is a day of good news, but we're keeping silent. You've got to share the good news. If you're the ones that have the good news, go share it. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore, let us go tell the king's household. So anyway, they do the right thing. They go and report it. It's a good chapter. That's Second Kings chapter 7. We'll be there someday. I mean, we'll get to all of this eventually between now and December, right? 
King Uzziah, just because you're a king doesn't mean you're going to escape judgment. And uh, he, he's going to live out his days as a leper, going to retirement. He has to have a joint reign with his son who comes to the throne early because uh, Uriah is just you know medically retired with the, uh, with the leprosy. And of course the ones that Jesus encounters in Matthew 8, Luke 17, and then Simon the leper. We know him by name. And uh, Jesus goes to his house there. All right, well that is part of chapter 14. We're going to come back for session 54 and we'll do the rest of chapter 14 from verses 33 to the end and then chapter 15 and chapter 16. And it's a big hour. It's one that uh, not only do we cover bodily discharges and other things that seem medical, uh, we will also be getting into the Day of Atonement, the biggest day of, of the sacrificial year, the one that, that cleanses the entire nation for the year. So uh, we'll pick up on that next hour. All right. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for this time together. And Father, uh, continue to bless these studies as we work our way through the calendar year. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.